To study theology is not so much an academic endeavor as it is a relational endeavor. It is the study of God himself, what he has revealed to us about his character and his nature, who we are and how we connect with him. And these foundational Christian doctrines are not something new with our generation. For nearly 2,000 years, the church has been built upon the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and prophets as written in God's word. When we do theology, we are joining together with the generations of the church that have gone before us in declaring the timeless truths of God. This has always been about a relationship. It's always been about love. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior. He's anointed as prophet because He comes to declare the truth of God. No one else ever hung upon a cross and bore my sins and carried them far away. No one else was ever laid in a grave and came up on the third day for my justification. So that all those who come to Christ may enter in. So that all those who place faith in Christ might be saved, but not only saved, but sanctified. If you came here this morning seeking religion, you came to the wrong building. As we enter into our 10th year as a church, we're going to be laying the foundation again. What is the core theology of the Christian faith? And what does it look like? And to understand this foundational doctrine, my goal is that we get done with these 10 weeks of looking at theologies, the studies of God and His Word and the Holy Spirit and the church, that we would be able to say, no, this is what we're built upon. This is what matters. And so as we embark on this journey, I just want to give you a few challenges. Um, Here's the first one. I want to challenge you to be here for all 10 weeks of this. Now, I know things are going to come up. Uh, You're going to have a vacation planned to go somewhere warm and sunny. Uh, You're going to be sick. Please don't come on those weeks. But but, uh, during that week, would you re-watch the sermon uh, to get the content? Because we're trying to paint a whole picture, a holistic picture of what is the foundational doctrine of the church. Second, I really want to encourage you to engage your kids in this process. Your kids are not too young to learn theology. They are not too young to to be discipled. They are being discipled by the world. And as a church, we're going to come around and say, no, we are going to show the good things of Jesus and his word. And one of the ways I want to encourage you to do that in in our bookstore or on Amazon, there is a book uh, called Theology. And um, it, it just short little snippets and beautiful artwork and just to engage and have conversations. And you're going to find yourself challenged and encouraged. Even if you don't have kids, I'm not going to judge you if you buy that thing. It's awesome. It's a little coffee table book. And so, um, so I want you to encourage you to engage in that way. Third, would you invite others? Man, people are hungry to learn about their creator whether they realize it or not. We all have this God-sized hole in the middle of our souls. And, and this is a found, people want to know what does the church actually believe. People want to know who is God and what is he like. And this is a way that we're not discussing anything else other than man, what God has revealed to himself. So here's how today is going to work. Um, we're going to start out with a lot of information, okay? It's going to be pretty, uh, pretty heady, uh, but, but it's good. It, it, you're you're going to understand. We're going to look at what is the Trinity, and then we're going to zoom in on theology proper, which is the study of God the Father. And, and so we're going to start with information. Hey, how do, we, how do we understand biblically, theologically? And then it's going to move. You're going to feel that turn. It's going to move to our hearts of how this applies and plays out in our everyday 
lives. And so, uh, just to, to kick us off with a nice, you know, daylight savings, lost an hour of sleep Sunday, here's some Trinitarian theology. Okay, here's the Trinity, all right? So, the Trinity, I'm going to give you a statement and then I'm going to break this down. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who each are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with each other. So let's break this down. Let's look at this. First, now, there is only one God. This is affirmed both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 1, to the king of, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's one God, Yet, he exists in three persons. God the Father, this is theology proper, which we're going to look at today. God the Son, which is Christology, the study of Christ, or the study of the Messiah. We're going to look at that next week. And then week three, we're going to look at pneumatology, God, God the Holy Spirit, study the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, this is what he says when he sends out his church and he's commissioning him to go make disciples, he says, baptize them in the name of what? The Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus believes in Trinitarian theology, so we believe in Trinitarian theology. So there is one God, that's affirmed in Scripture, but there are three distinct persons who are each fully and equally God, okay? So maybe this will help understand even just visually, okay? So you have God the Father, and he is God. You have God the Son, and he is God, and you have God the Holy Spirit, who is God. But God the Father is not God the Holy Spirit. They are separate, distinct persons. God the Son is not God the Father, and God the Son is not the Holy Spirit. So it would be theologically inaccurate to say the Holy Spirit died upon the cross, right? That's God the Son. That's, that's Jesus. So understanding these distinctions, okay? And if we're not careful with these distinctions and clear about them, we can get into, uh, we can get into heresy that, that are untrue things theologically, okay? So one of the heresies is people will say uh, there's multiple gods, okay? This is actually polytheism, okay? That's the belief in multiple gods. So Hinduism uh, teaches polytheism, and actually Mormonism also teaches the polytheism. They do not succumb, they do not um, uh, submit under uh, Trinitarian theology. They say, no, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there are three different gods, okay? Um, this is also not, going, not God showing different expressions of himself. This is a heresy known as modalism, and here's what I mean. Um, people will teach, okay, well, God, uh, in the Old Testament, he's, he's Father, and then in the New Testament, he shows up, and he's, he's Jesus. He transforms and becomes Jesus the Son, and then later on, he becomes the Holy Spirit. But it's just, you know, it's, it's God in different forms and different expressions. And this can happen when we're trying to, like, because we're trying to wrap our minds around something, you know, all you guys are, like, staring at me, like, seriously, dude, you chose daylight savings to do this? <laughs> yes, I did. Let's go. We're going after we, we try to wrap our heads around, so we come up with these analogies, you know, we're like, oh, it, you know, the Trinity is like, you know, it's like, it's like water. It comes in different forms. There's solid, there can be ice, there can be liquid, which is water, or there can be, you know, there can be vapor, which is, which is gas. But that is, that, that's actually modalism. That's saying, no, he just shows up in different ways. We're saying there are three distinct persons. And this is important for us to understand because he is always working in relationship. 
constantly in connection and relationship. Now, the third heresy um, that we have to be careful of is we say, um, some people will say, no, God the Son, Jesus was created by God the Father. No, Jesus has always existed. We'll look at that more in depth um, next week, but that is, um, that is a form of heresy known as Arianism. That's a, and, and so this is like what Jehovah Witnesses teach. They change the Bible to say uh, where it says, um, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They say, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, okay? No, it, it, it's, it's a distinction that we have to understand. We'll look at that more next week. But each, each Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully and equally God, and they're in eternal relationship with each other, okay? This plays out in a few ways that, that I want to explain, and I'll just kind of see some scripture with this. First, uh, they reveal one another. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And this is important. Okay, because you'll hear people say things like, oh man, the God of the Old Testament is just angry and wrathful. I don't want, I don't want a relationship with God the Father. And what Jesus is saying is part of the reason I came is to show the love of God the Father. When you see me, you see what the Father is like. When you see me, you see what the Holy Spirit is like. Second, them being in eternal relation with each other, uh, they work in perfect partnership. So the Trinity is always working together in perfect union and partnership. This is what Todd Bolsinger writes to explain this. The doctrine of the Trinity requires that while certain aspects of salvation are attributed to one person of the Trinity, only Jesus, the Son, died on the cross. In fact, every divine act involves the entire Trinity operating inter- dependently, okay? So as you read through the scriptures and you read through it with a Trinitarian lens, what do you see at creation? You see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit creating together. It's this beautiful partnership. When Jesus comes down and he's baptized, there's this moment where he comes out of the water and the voice of the Father says, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. And it says the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, always working. And then in salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together. In the Father, we have a God who initiates, he wills salvation on your behalf. In the Son, you have a God who has accomplished salvation on your behalf. And in the Holy Spirit, you have a God who applies salvation in our behalf. So they're always working in perfect unison. Third, speaking of their relationship, uh, they are mutually, in, they mutually indwell one another, okay? Since they're all fully God, and the whole God is in each of the three, it follows that the three mutually indwell and contain one another, okay? So G Jesus reveals this. He says, he's, he's praying for the church, and he says, may they be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. It, this is hard for us to understand because um, it's such an indwelling relationship, but what we need, what I want you to take away is Jesus is fully God. He's not like a sliver of God. He's not like, oh, that's one-third of God, okay? Um, Tim Chester puts it like this. Each person of the Trinity shares in the life of the other, so in each person, the being of the one God is fully manifested. The eternal God in himself is a mutually indwelling, loving community. There is such, it says God is love. There's such love, there's such connection that there is no separation, there is no disconnection. And how this plays out is that they share glory. 
They are so intimate, so communal, so connected that when you glorify one, you are glorifying the others. So it's not like you say, we say, man, we are all about Jesus. And we are built upon Jesus and we're gonna preach Jesus and we're gonna declare Jesus and the Holy Spirit's like over in the corner like, why is he getting all the credit, you know? What this means is when you glorify Jesus and you lift him up, at the same, they're so interconnected. They are one. You are at the same time honoring and glorifying the Holy Spirit. When you glorify the Holy Spirit and you say, Holy Spirit, make us more aware of your presence. Would you move in the church? You are bringing glory to the Father because they are one God. Jesus prayed. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. When you glorify the Son, you are also glorifying the Father. This is the relationship of the Trinity. Now, you got that 2,000 years of theology in seven minutes? We good? Okay. Now, we're going to start breaking each apart and under, looking at each one individually over the next few weeks. So this first week, um, we're going to dive into what is known as theology proper, the study of God the Father. Now, this guy named Paul Vitz, he's a professor at NYU, and he wrote a book where he studied the world's most famous atheists. He, he called the book Faith of the Fatherless, and he found this common thread among some of the most prominent atheists, uh, people you've likely heard of, uh, Sigmund Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche, Voltaire, okay? And, and each one of these atheists made a massive statement about God. So Freud... Uh, he's a psychologist that many of you have heard of and probably even studied in school. Uh, he explained that, l- listen, our belief in God is simply a made-up belief because we want to identify with a parent and feel safe, and our parents let us down. So, so he's speaking to it in that way. Uh, Nietzsche, uh, other than being known for the world's most incredible mustache, okay, that thing is like a broom. I could sweep this whole room. Uh, he, he's where we got the phrase, God is dead. He's like, God's dead. God is dead. Voltaire, he states that we create God in our own image. And so each of these um, atheists that had a massive influence on culture and Western civilization, uh, when Witz was studying them and many other prominent atheists, he found this common thread in all of their lives. And here, here, here it was. Each of these men had a massive father wound from their childhood. Each of these men had a broken relationship with their father. And this brokenness, in many ways, got projected on this idea of God the Father. Freud, his father, it was completely disconnected and apathetic. It was unable uh, to provide for the family. He's a sexual pervert. Nietzsche, his father died at a really young age, and so he actually grew up without a father. And Voltaire, he, he, the reason he chose to go by a singular name is he had such a broken relationship with his dad. And so these, these prominent atheists, because they had such horrible relationship with their earthly father, they then project that onto this idea of God. And they're like, no, God's dead. God's not around. Oh, no, no, I, I, I'm wounded. I don't want anything to do with that. I, I reject it flat outright. And we see this. There's actually a counseling, a psychological term used today as father wound that shapes so much of our lives, our connection and relationship with our earthly father. And here's what I want us to be careful of as we're going into this and, and looking at, um, that we ourselves, we have to be careful to not let our own 
brokenness, our own wounds, our own past, especially when it comes to relationships with our Father, to shape who we think God the Father to be, but rather let God speak for himself and let his son Jesus say, man, this is what my dad is like. So God, he, he, he calls himself God, Father. God is Father. He reveals himself of that. In, in the Old Testament, we see he's constantly calling Israelites the sons. But Jesus is where we learn the most about what God the Father is like. There's 175 times throughout the Gospels that Jesus refers to his God as Father. And as he's teaching people, he's constantly saying, he's bringing in the context of Father. So when he teaches to pray, he says, this is how you pray. And what does he say? How do we start out? Our Father who art in heaven. It's, it's the Aramaic word, Abba. He's saying, hey, you have something that's burdening you? Why don't you pray to Dad? Like, you don't know what he's like, but I do. He's loving. And then he starts talking about this idea of you feel anxious, you feel worried about, about where you're gonna find food and where you're gonna find clothing. Would you just look around? Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. The Father in heaven provides every need for them. How much more for you will he provide? If only you knew what dad was like you would turn to him. And then they're questioning the character and the nature of God and he tells a story. And he tells a parable. A parable about a father who had two sons. He had an older son and a younger son and the younger son took his inheritance and went away to a far off land and spent all his inheritance and reached rock bottom. And he said he finally got enough courage to go home and he's like, even my father's slaves, even my father's servants have it better than I do. And so he goes home, afraid of the rejection, but hey, at least I can go be a servant. And it says, the father runs out to greet him on the road. And Jesus is saying, this is what my father is like. This is his nature and his character, you guys. Jesus' foundational theology and teaching about how we should relate to his dad is as our father. This is why J.A. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. This is the first, this is where we have to start. Man, God as a father who loves us. And he takes his fatherly, fatherly responsibilities for his children upon himself. There's all these promises throughout scripture. What does it tell us? It says that, that God the Father provides for us. It tells us in Philippians that he will supply for our every need. We see this in Matthew 6, Jesus' teaching. It says he will protect us. Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus tells us that, that even the hairs of our head are numbered, so we should fear not. Or you look at the Old Testament, it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I shall fear no evil. Why? Because God the Father is our protector. He encourages us. He hears our cries and he lifts our hearts. He comforts us. He is the God of all comfort. He even disciplines us. Hebrews 12. God disciplines those he loves and punishes anyone, everyone he accepts as a son because he actually loves us. Now, here's what I want to say. As you see this list some of you, this is a painful list. Because when you think about a father providing, you think about how you grew up. And you think of some of the ways that you, in your experience that didn't take place. When you think about protection or encouragement, you're like, encouragement, seriously? 
comfort. I never experienced that. The only thing I experienced on that list was discipline. And oh, he disciplined us all right. And we take our experiences, our wounds, and we project them on God the Father. And what Jesus, part of what Jesus came to do is refeat, not only invite us into God's family through salvation, through his sacrifice, but to reveal what that family is like with God the Father at the head of it. And he's like, no, he provides and he protects and he encourages and he comforts and he disciplines. So what is the Father like? Well, theologians, uh, they kind of break down the attributes of God. And they break them down in two categories, the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. I had to practice that like 57 times so I didn't fumble over that, all right? So incommunicable attributes, what they are is attributes that only God has and we don't actually share them. And then communicable attributes, on the other hand, are attributes that God has given us. He shared them with us and he shares them with humanity. So this is by no means an exhaustive list, okay? But, but I just want to share this with you kind of one by one. Um, and uh, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send this out for your groups this week as you meet in your groups. I'm going to make sure you have this whole list to be able to like look at and talk through, okay? Uh, for, Incommunicable. Only God has these. Only God is eternal, meaning he has no beginning and end, and he sees all time equally. Only God is immutable, meaning he is unchanging. He's omniscient. God fully knows all things. He's omnipresent. He, he is present in every point of space. He's omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful, and he's omnibenevolent. God lacks any type of malice. He is all good. Only God has these. Now, here's the problem as human beings. You know what we want to do? We want these attributes. And so we want to know all things. We want to be omniscient. And the closest we've probably ever been as a society is that small little device in your front pocket or your purse right now. It gives you access to all the world has ever known. You, can know, you wake up in the morning, and all of a sudden you know what's happening halfway across the world. You know what's happening in different places. But you know why it causes anxiety? Anxiety in you and cripples you? Because now you're borderline omniscient, but you cannot be omnipresent. You're still stuck exactly where you are, and you are not all-powerful. You can't do anything about it. And so only God has these attributes. And as we strive for these things, no, there's moments where you have to step back and say, you know what, there's things that's good that I don't know. I trust you more than, because I don't, I can't be present there and I, and I have no power to do anything about it and I am not all good. And so I trust you in these things. Okay, so the other category is the communicable attributes of our Father. These are qualities that God has shared with us. He possesses them perfectly and infinitely. And we, ourselves, we, he actually has shared so that we can strive to develop and embody these qualities to the best of our ability. We'll never get there perfectly in this life, but... Um, so attributes of God the Father, he's love. He's eternally, he eternally gives himself to others. He's holy. He's separate from sin and devoted to his own honor. He's wise. He always chooses the best and knows the best means. He's faithful, meaning he's true and trustworthy and his word is reliable. He's jealous, meaning he relentlessly protects his own glory. He's just. God is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creatures. He defends victims and brings vengeance upon oppressors. And so these are communicable attributes. These are things that can be shared. Now, here's what I wanna do. I want to look at just one of these incommunicable attributes and one of these communicable 
okay? Because it helps us, under, as we zoom in, it helps us understand, all right? This is one of my favorite ones because I can never wrap my mind around it. And so we're just gonna have our, all our collectively have all our minds blown uh, this morning, okay? Uh, God the Father is eternal. So this means two things. It means first that God has no beginning and no end, and second, it means that he exists outside of time, okay? So he has no beginning and no end, okay? So, so God is eternal means he will always exist. Now, we can start to like kind of get this concept a little bit because you've lived 15, 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75 years. So you've experienced time. So you're like, I can imagine, I can picture 25 years from now. Or I could even picture, I can picture, I'm going to be in an eternity, and I can picture 100 years from now. You, we can experience a little bit, we can grasp time. Now, once you get beyond, you know, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, you start to like, you like run out of brain, right? You know what I'm talking about? Where you just like, you start twitching a little bit. Like when I was a kid, and I would think about this, I would actually like start crying, my mom would come in and I would be crying. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm thinking about eternity, like forever and ever. And then what happens at the end of that? She's like, go play video games. Go do something less meaningful with your life. You're gonna, cut, you're gonna hurt yourself, Jason, you know, right? And, but but there's, a, there's a sense where we're like, no, like God will always exist. That makes sense, right? This is what's so much harder for me. God has always existed. He's always been. Like before he created time. You're like, so what was God doing before he created the world? Just, like, what was he doing? Like, for like a year? Did he get bored? Like, he couldn't have gotten bored because it was eternal, right? So at some point, he's just always existed, and then he creates the world and time. But this is what scripture tells us, even though it's hard for us to understand. It tells us, Isaiah 43, from eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. He's, he's eternal, meaning he has always existed and he always will. There's no beginning or no end, okay? Now, here's where this gets crazy, all right? God exists outside of time. And here's what I mean, okay? So here's a little here, here's a little linear picture of time. So uh, the world and all of it, all the universe was created, okay? And then time goes on, right? And then that's you, right? That's you right there. And then time's gonna continue to go on and then there's gonna be the second coming of Jesus and the beginning of eternity. Now, some of you guys are like, man, you need to move that over, right? You know, this is the end times, brother. I got my charts. Okay, but, but for the sake of illustration, okay, be with me. Okay, so you, you, we got that. This is time. Now, here's what I need you to understand. God is outside of time, meaning he sees all of history equally vividly. He can see, like he can look down he can experience, he knows what is happening right now in this very moment with equal vividitiousness, whatever the word you want to make up for that, with equal clarity of when he created the world. He sees all things happen. He, he can experience it. He knows it. He can step out and he can be like, hmm. 
There's the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, entering into the promised land, you know, the wilderness before they go to the promised land, exiting Egypt. He can see that. And he can see five years from now, the Blazers winning the NBA championship. He can see all things, right? With equal clarity, right? Equal clarity in these moments. And because he's omniscient, he knows everything that's occurred, everything that's occurring, and everything that will occur. And because of that, he is more loving and more patient and more wise than we can ever imagine. Now, this is hard, again, for us to wrap our minds around this, but but I want you to think of it this way, okay? Um, So so my son, Dax, is nine, and I've had these moments in his life that are just, like, precious. They're things that we, like, look back. I didn't quite recognize it in the moment, but things that you just, if I would go back at any moment and just experience, okay? So, so here, here's Dax uh, at two years old, and I'm just pushing him on a swing. Like, just that little giggle and that big old smile and that, that laugh, man. Like, I just, it was precious to me. And then zoom forward a couple years later, and uh, this was a common experience for my wife and I. We would, um, he, he loved, there was these like handmade dinosaur creatures that he loved at Fred Meyer and they were expensive and we were broke. So we didn't buy them. We just went to Fred Meyer every day so he could play. And we would spend hours I kid you not, we would sit on the floor and he'd build these like little lands. For some reason, he only had one shoe. Don't judge me, okay? And, uh, you know, he would just play with these creatures for hours. It was just part of like his experience, okay? Okay, now zoom forward a couple more years. He started to get more into creatures and uh, he, he was out with his mom one day and one of the creatures he's trying to catch, he gets bit by and this is his, uh, this is his uh, response. Now, I'm at, like, here's what I need you to understand. As a father, these are moments in time, and they are precious to me. Now, imagine, imagine I was eternal. Imagine I could go outside of time, and at any moment, I could go back and enter those moments and have eternal perspective. Like, imagine me going back. Like, what would it be like if I could go back and just push two-year-old Dax on that swing again. I guarantee you, I was tired that day. I was like, man, I just carried him all the way, you know, to this park, and I'm pushing him on this swing, and then he wants to do the slide. And at some point, I was like, I got things to do, Dax. Like, we got to, but if I was able to go back right now, like, how present would I be? I I wouldn't be like, okay, I got to carry you back. I'd be like, hey, can I carry you back? Dax, can I, I would do anything to hear that little giggle to just like put them on my shoulders and walk back with them. All those hours we spent on the floor of Fred Meyer. But, but now I have this different perspective on the outside. Just, I would just sit there and I would just watch his little creative mind develop. And he, as he would fall in love with creatures and, and build worlds, not only would I be more engaged, but I would, I would encourage, I would have a, an eternal perspective. So I would encourage it in different ways. I would embrace it in different ways as, as, as he walks through it. Even moments of pain. Those are brutal moments as a parent. But here's what I know. 
I know that moment of pain played a critical role in him, that little boy, developing courage and bravery. Now he faces things in a different way because of that moment of pain. And I would have a wisdom and a perspective on it if I could just see it all with, with equal clarity, equally in that moment. I would have eternal joy in those moments. I would have eternal perspective of what, how it's gonna be used and developed. I would have eternal wisdom for how to respond as a father to engage and respond with eternity in those moments. But I'm not, right? None of us have that. We just look back and we, and we wish, oh man, if I could just go back. Here's what is the scriptures are telling us. That we have a father who is eternal. And he sees what you're going through. But he has eternal perspective on it. He sees the painful moment you're in right now. And you sit back and you're like, God, why would you let this happen to me? And he's like, oh, just you wait. Just you wait. I know how I'm gonna use this for my glory. I know how I'm gonna use it for your good and develop in a different way. We look back on our past and we're like, God, why, why would you allow that? And it, because he is eternally wise. He is outside of time. And so he can answer and respond to our prayers. He can engage with us in a different way. He can be so near. He knows how, what a blip on the radar, and, he, and he's so near and so precious. This is what the scriptures tell us about our eternal God. Now, here's what's crazy. There is a part of us, because we have shame and we have sin in our lives, that we hear this, and we're like, oh, man, so he sees every moment with clarity, even my worst ones, yep, but here's what I need you to understand. Because he simultaneously sees every moment in history with equal vividness and clarity, he doesn't just see your sin and your shame, but he also sees the sacrifice of Jesus on your place on the cross. He looks down and you're broken and you're confessing and you're crying out for your need. And in the same moment, he hears his son say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is why it is so mind-boggling that we have a heavenly father that is eternal. He, will all, he has always existed, and he will always exist, and because he's eternal, he does not change with the times. He does not change with culture. He does not change with the to and fro. He, no, he is eternal forever, and he can see all things, and he can respond with perfect wisdom, perfect grace, perfect clarity, what we need in these moments. But he's not only just eternal, he's eternally loving. God the Father is love. This is the communicable attribute that he shares with us. And the most common word used is the word has said. It's used over 400 times. It, it, it can be translated, it can't just be translated into one word, that you have to combine it with something. So they, they, they translate has said as faithful love or covenant love or everlasting love. And this theologian, Hebrew theologian Daniel Block, he says, the Hebrew has said cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. So we hear love, but we use it for all kinds of things, right? You're like, I love my kids. I love tacos, right? You know, we, we have this variance. But this word has said is, no, this is God's love. This is 
covenant love. This is steadfast and faithful love. And so when he reveals himself, what he's like, there's this interaction he has with Moses. And Moses says, show me your glory, and God reveals himself. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the word has said. And faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What is God's love like? How, how is he as a father? He's a father who is compassionate and is gracious. He's a father who is slow to anger. He's abounding in his faithful, steadfast, his said love and his fatherly love. Guys, it's eternal. At its core, this love is the kind of love that is faithful and unconditional and extending grace and compassion, even in the face of wrongdoing and rejection, involves acts of kindness and generosity and forgiveness. Has said is how God interacts with us. This is what Jesus came to reveal. He's like, man, if you could just experience the love of our eternal Father. It's a covenantal love. See, because he's outside of time, he makes these promises with us. And, and you'll read through, and he says, he makes a promise, makes a covenant. And, and what he says is, um, if you obey, here's the blessing that'll be poured out. And then he steps back, and he looks at the timeline, and he says, and when you disobey, here's the, here's the consequences of it, because he's covenant. But he is always faithful in his end. He always holds up his end. This is why Charles Spurgeon says, settle this in your heart, man. Build your life upon this. Whether I am up or down, the Lord is the same. From everlasting to everlasting, he never changes. Whether I sing or sigh, the promise is true and the promiser is faithful. Whether I stand on the summit or am hidden in the veil, the covenant stands fast and everlasting love abides. Can you imagine what it would do to our lives, our prayer lives, our faith, our trust, if we started to understand this eternal loving God that we have. It would change everything. You would pray differently. You would, you would evangelize differently. You would hold your kids differently. You would love your friends differently. If we, it would shape everything about our identity if we found our root identity as we are children of the Father. I've been, last few months, I've been getting together with a group of pastors kind of from all around the United States. And uh, uh, we get together different, different places across the country and we have this guy who's, who's leading our group. His name is Dave. And um, he, he's been a pastor for a number of years. He's in his 60s. And he was telling us a story this last time we got together about, um, he, was, he was preaching. And he got up preaching and uh, he was preaching about how we as a church, we need to love outsiders. They need to experience God's love through us, and that's the only way. And so we need to love outsiders. And so he, he got done preaching, he went down, and he uh, sat down next to his wife, and his wife was very emotional. And he's, he's like, what, what's going on? What are you feeling right now? She's like, I just got a very, very clear picture of what God is calling us to do as a family. And he said, okay, what is it? Well, their church, they had a ministry um, that ministered to, um, to strippers. Um, they, would, they would just this group of women in society who were always looked down upon 
who are treated as objects, both by those who would um, participate and those on the outside. Everybody looked down on them. And so as a church, they're like, no, we're gonna remind them of their dignity and value. We're gonna speak words of, of grace and love and remind them that they are created in God's image and they are deeply valuable. And so this, this pastor's wife says, God gave me a clear picture of us sitting around a Christmas dinner table with all of these strippers. Um, and we need to invite them into our home this Christmas for a Christmas dinner. And so they did. They actually rented, uh, rented a big giant bus <laughs> and um, invited them all to come over. And um, they, dressed, they dressed fancy, modestly, but, but nice. And they had this beautiful dinner prepared. And they came and they, they shared a meal and they played family games. Some of them family games for the first time. And they just enjoyed the presence of being in this loving family. And they, um, uh, they, at the end, they did a devotion. And they started, you know, sharing about God's love and God the Father and his love for us. And then they would pray together. Well, over the years, this actually became a tradition for their family. Uh, there was so much joy and so much response in that. Um, they saw a number of these gals actually um, able to finally step out of that industry, which is a hard thing to do. A number of them got baptized in their church, but year after year, they just kept having them over for this Christmas dinner. And one Christmas, uh, one of the gals said, uh, can I pray for dinner? And so she starts to pray. And somewhere along her prayer for the meal, she just said this small, simple phrase, Lord, thank you for Dave and Beth and their willingness to have a bunch of strippers in their home. And she said, amen. And and uh, one of the girls said, beautiful prayer, but I disagree. And Dave thought to himself, he's like, oh, here we go, right? These girls can fight, and they fight, and they fight. And so here we go. She goes, I disagree. She says, we are not a bunch of strippers. We are daughters of the king. Your foundational identity the most important thing that you can know about yourself is whose child you are. This is why we study theology. It's not to get big heads or to win arguments. It's to study a person. It's to know what God the Father is like, to know that he can step outside of time and see all things and engage with us. So when we cry out to him, Father, I need your help. He knows what he's gonna do. He knows what you need in that moment. And his love is said. It is covenant, faithful, steadfast love. He is your father. And you are his child. Our deepest longing is an eternal, loving father. That's what we long for, to be in relationship with him. It's because God created us for himself. The most loving thing that a perfectly loving being could do is to create creations to pour that love into. That's why you exist. That you would experience his love and worship him and glorify him for his goodness. This is why Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Lord, would we find our rest in you? Would we find our identity in you? 
would we realize that we are daughters and sons of the king, that you are steadfast, you are eternal, you have always been and you will always be, you are never changing and your love is tied to your promise. It is tied to your nature. It is tied to your character. And so, Lord, as we study theology over the next handful of months, Lord, would this not be a mind practice as much as it's a heart practice? Would this not be about positioning as much as it is about posturing ourselves to know and to worship you? We pray all this in your name. Amen.